0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate.
2: This week on Meet and Three, we're talking about comfort food as we explore its history, meaning, and different interpretations from around the world. Domburi is just a simple, casual dish, but it's packed with the history. Somebody might have their comfort food be something that they remember eating at their friend's house, but they would never have at their own home. Consuming foods that were eaten then can bring back some of those feelings from, from those times. It's about
0: creating these little breaks and moments during the day where you kind of feel present.
2: Tune in to Meetin and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. So you don't shun
0: the devil with your rock and roll load Knows that country music's gonna save your soul The devil runs
2: Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Souther Teague,
3: and I'm Greg Benson.
2: Hey, Greg. Hey, man. How's it going,
3: buddy? Ah, uh, you know, it's as much as that's a loaded question. It's it's going all right. You know, it's one of my uh, absolute favorite seasons here. I hate to sound as I hate to tip my hand as being as basic as I am, but yeah, it's just a, it's it's a gorgeous, beautiful fall day here in Brooklyn, and I just kind of like you know, it just it's one of those things that just kind of makes me happy, you know.
2: Are you cozied up somewhere with a pumpkin latte or something?
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, uh, I've I've graduated from that. I've got some, uh, some allspice dram here, and I'm just kind of making, like, winter cocktails. I, I will say it's one of these, like, I'm finding my tastes, like, taste preferences that I thought were just innate and just hammered into me and would be pretty much, like, set in one place for the rest of my life. Something about quarantine and this year in particular, maybe it's stress, maybe it's, you know, looming uncertainty, who knows. But I have become such a sweet, sweets person during all of this. I don't know what that's about. Uh, All summer, like any time I heard the the Mr. Softy truck going by my apartment, the thing that used to be a supreme annoyance, all of a sudden I would be like a little kid again and be like, ooh, ice cream and rush out after it. A um, bell ringing yeah exactly so I don't know if it's maybe just something about like you know like what I was just talking about is like seizing the little moments of joy that are out there and really like chasing them but one thing I assumed was just the way I liked things in my life is I like my coffee hot and my cocktails cold I respect the cold brew coffee game I respect the toddy game they're just not for me and that has also just been thrown completely out the window and i am more excited than i think i've ever been for toddy season this year i don't know if that's maybe that's just me maybe i'm just turning very very basic in my 30s and loving it but i i, I guess where do you stand on the whole toddy thing like what, are you a toddy guy how do you feel about that
2: I mean, I think uh, my record is clear in that I do not like them. um, And that stems from the fact that I don't drink or consume, frankly, any hot liquids. This is a a source of, I don't know, chagrin for a lot of my friends and people who are close to me. I don't eat soup. I think soup is... uh, uh, I think soup is a sauce that never, uh, you know, kind of completed its goal. Um, <laughs> I think uh, I don't drink hot coffee, hot cocoa, hot tea, first of all, I don't drink those things at all. But even when I did, you know, 20 plus years ago, when I did drink anything besides water and alcohol, I never drank uh, those things hot. Hot liquids to me do not mesh. However, uh, for the first time ever, Moria Margot has a hot co- cocktail on the menu because we're still serving outdoors and it is getting cold. Uh, and we've actually not only had a, one hot, hot cocktail printed on the menu, we've ran other hot cocktails as features during this time. So I'm not opposed to making them. I understand other people like them. You know, I, I walk past one of the most populous uh, ramen joints uh, in all of New York uh, on my way to work all the time, and it's it's crammed full. I don't have any interest in going there. Hot soup, not for me. Um, but I get it. So, I you know, I can understand that if it's something that your palate is turning towards and you like it and it seems seasonal and you're you're affected by those things, more power to you, buddy.
3: Do they, do they still have the hot cocktails we're doing? Do they still have the Amore Amargo DNA of just like stirred, boozy, bitter or?
2: Yep, indeed. Uh, the
3: one that's on the menu we call Bald
2: Mountain. It's uh, a reference to um, Disney's uh, uh, Fantasia because it has Farnelli's Punch Fantasia in it, which is a kind of a bitter butterscotch Amaro from La Marque, uh in Italy. Uh, it's got a couple of different rums in there as well, uh, and then we honestly we just mull water in a in one of those electric kettles. We have cinnamon, clove, anise uh, in in water that we bring to a boil and pour that into the classic amphora coffee cup that's everywhere in New York City. The one that looks like it you know it's got the Greek lettering on it. Um, and We top that with a bit of nutmeg, but yeah, uh, again, still no no sugar, no juice, uh, all booze, and then we just add some hot water and a scrape a nutmeg. And it's it's delightful. People are. I mean, we are selling lots and lots of them.
3: <laughs> I I um, will say, like Rocky, I, 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 honestly,
2: we're se- we're selling them so fast. Like I was <laughs> like, hot cocktails aren't going to sell here at Amoria Margot. <laughs> we'll just get a sleeve or two of those cups. No, 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 no. I'm I'm going through a sleeve a night um, uh, on these cooler nights. So yeah, uh, there we we
3: love our toddies, man. I'll I'll say this. One of possibly my favorite moments at Amoria Margot. Was the day that I I believe it was Yelp or maybe it was BuzzFeed or Thrillist or clearly someone that didn't do their research put you number two on best places to get mulled wine in New York City. (laughs)
2: Oh uh, yeah, that's right. That was, like, two years I, ago. Must have, I
3: must have been there the day that article dropped because like the I remember very distinctly two very nice and understanding women came in and were like, We'll have two mold wines. And you of course said, That's not a thing we have. And they said, Really? And they showed you your face when they showed you the Yelp article or whatever it was, was truly just French kiss. Like uh, yeah. or like French chef. Love uh, it. And, As I
2: recall, I talked them into staying for a drink anyway. <laughs> and
3: they did, and they and they had a good time, but they were not the last. I only hung out there for, like, a couple of rounds. You know, uh, uh, f- I think there were, like, four or five other people that also came in for oh, yeah. Amoria Margo's famous mulled wine that evening.
2: Yeah, I had kind of forgotten that. Yeah, we... Uh... We've, it's crazy. We, a lot of those things have happened. Um, for years, uh, somewhere out there on the internet that hadn't been scrubbed and probably still isn't, people would come in and ask for oysters, uh, which we've never served. Um, and then um, I still occasionally get people coming in uh, asking where the pool table is. And my, my immediate response, <laughs> of course, based on the size of the room, which is only 240 square feet, a pool table literally would never fit in there. Um, but when people come in and say, you know, we read about the pool table, I say, yeah, it's, we sent it out to the shop. Um, which is also something you don't do. A guy comes and fixes your pool table, <laughs> so we we sort of just continue the rhetoric on the pool table issue. But yeah, um, you know, crazier crazier things have happened. I don't I don't operate the internet. I operate a Morrie Margot. <laughs> I'm wondering. I feel internet. like
3: a Southern Teague operated internet would be a, a a curmudgeonly but better version of the current internet that we have. <laughs>
2: One can only hope
3: uh,
2: curmudgeonly crab appley. Speaking of apples, that's a, that's how we do it.
3: That's a, um, a pl- best segue ever. Well done. Well yeah,
2: done. Uh, oh, man. Yeah, I'm a real, I'm a real crabapple. apple. Um, Greg, tell us who we got in the virtual studio with us today.
3: In our virtual studio with us today, we have Ryan Burke, the head cider maker for angry orchard. Ryan, thank you so much for coming to join us today.
4: For sure. Happy to be here.
3: Hey Ryan, where are you? Where are you zooming in from?
4: I am in Walden, New York, uh, which is where we have our our cider house and um, our orchards. Yeah, right so, on. hanging out here today. And I just wanted to add, Greg, um, I bought my first ice cream machine this year, so I think you're onto something. Um, I've been making ice cream at home for 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 the need. I think I think it's a thing. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a trend of this time.
3: It's just it's the it's it's the small comforts, man. You gotta you gotta grab those little like fireflies of joy out of the air when they pass by. Otherwise, who knows when the next one's gonna come along? You know.
2: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Comfort, uh, comfort (laughs) is selling. You know, people are coming in and buying classic cocktails. People are coming in and asking for you know foods that are comforting. I can see that. That's what's selling at all my other friends' places as well. Like that's that's what's got it going. Um, I assume. Uh, Given your bio that you sent over, Ryan, that that, that apples are somewhat comforting to you. It looks like you've been working in and around them literally all your life. Talk about how you got into being around apples so much.
4: Yeah, so my hometown is a little place called Williamson, New York. Um, It's sort of equidistant between Rochester and Syracuse. Um, Not a lot going on there. Um, Not only um, was it a dry town which it was up until 2004 um, from Prohibition. Um, it's also the home base for moths. So basically all of the land that isn't inhabited um, is apple orchards. Um, so alongside of uh, growing up around just apples everywhere, uh, a bit of a um, you know, behind-the-barn uh, cider-making uh, tradition. So, um, yeah, sort of came by it pretty honestly through that. It certainly wasn't a career path um coming out of Williamson senior high school, but um ultimately i i threw through an interest in fermentation at a pretty young age. I got into home brewing very young um and um and
2: and yeah an interest <laughs> an interest because you couldn't get any beer in your in your town. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would have had the yeah. same interest, pal, believe me. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
4: So I mean, it just it just was sort of around, you know. So I knew about it at a really young age, and um, it wasn't you know considered. It was it was just a thing that was there, you know. You it, it didn't even. It's not like I, when I went to college, there was something we talked about or bragged about or this cool thing that we did. It was just a thing that existed. Um, so, but being aware of it did, um, you know, get me interested in fermentation and what that meant, um, and ultimately that got me into homebrewing, like I said, and. Um, through that, I got really involved with slow food um, and just ingredients in general, where they're coming from, how they're how things were made, um, and ultimately, slow food got me uh, connected with Greg Hall, who was the brewmaster at Goose Island for for a long time. And when he left um, and was looking for to do his next thing, um, I linked up with him, and we we started uh, making cider out in Michigan. And I did that for, for several years until coming over to Angry Orchard to, to take over as head cider maker.
2: Pretty awesome trail of events. Um, says in your bio, you went to, to school here in New York. Did you go to school for, for like fermentation arts or distilling arts or anything like that?
4: N- um, out in Chicago, there's, there's a school called Siebel. Um, and I did go there for the brewing technology. Um, but at the time that I got into the cider industry, there really wasn't any kind of technical. Cider school or cider courses you could take. You could get in get in via brewing. You could get in via wine or spirits, but there wasn't um, there was no real cider class. You'd have to go over to the UK for that kind of thing. You know, 11 years ago. Now, um, I'm proud to say we have an organization called the Cider Institute of North America, where you actually can get a science-based education in cider making. um, That's taught at, at schools like Cornell and Virginia Tech and OSU and things like that. So. Uh, the last 10 years has been a really big growth spurt for our industry in so many different ways.
3: Well, then how how did you sort of at the at the forefront of that growth spurt sort of make the leap back to, you know, this thing that's 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 very much in your blood? It's in the the sort of origins of your hometown. Uh, were you at this? Uh, the Siebel Institute, kind of like messing around with, you know, making beers and making who knows what else, and just kind of wanting to bring this sort of cider making tradition back, or was it something that you kind of rediscovered at some point later in your life?
4: Yeah, no, I was always there, even as a you know, even as a home brewer before I saw an opportunity to to do it professionally. I was making cider, so I was living in Chicago at the time. Um, I Got linked up with. This is sort of weird to say, but we, we had a you know there was a home brewing scene, right? So it was um, Chicago was just a really great place to be a home brewer. You had a ton of support from Goose Island. Uh, they would have these meetings um, every month, and they would bring in brewers from around the country, around the world to speak, and so you had all this access. Um, but there wasn't a huge brewing like professional brewing scene in Chicago at that time. But the home brewing scene was was um, was really buzzy and. Through that, I met a bunch of people who were throwing these events led by the chef. His name's Juan Kim. um, And Juan would cook and we would all bring our beer to these events. They're sort of like homebrewing raves Um, because they were totally illegal. (laughs) They were totally illegal. Red.
2: This sounds red.
4: (laughs) Yeah. And so we would do them in these spaces and Juan would cook. Everyone that was involved in this, in this sort of, in this scene would, would bring, you know, their best stuff and we would, you know, pair it to the, to the food. So my exposure was like very much wrapped around food and also this sort of sense of friendly competition. Um, And ultimately everyone in that group including Juan has moved on to uh, Juan. Juan's a chef at a few restaurants has his own place in Chicago. Everyone that was brewing beer either works in the brewing industry or has their own brewery. And then the one guy that was making cider, me, um, you know, is a professional cider maker now. So it was really like my formative years uh, were really in Chicago and I, I never let go of cider through all my fermentation exploration. So it's always been something. And so when I went to Siebel, um, I'd actually already kind of got in with Greg and with the Virtue Cider crew, and we hadn't we hadn't launched the brand yet. We were everything was kind of in the background, um, and it was sort of lucky to get in at the, the ground up. And I went to Siebel sort of in that beginning
0: stage.
2: Why is it that you th- why do you think maybe it's, I'm sure you don't know the answer, but why do you think that America uh, is dragging their feet? You know, if if all of these sort of uh, uh, educational experiences were available in 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 Europe and, and other places. Why did it take us so long to get on board? When we've had, you know, when we arrived here, we planted apples all over the place to use as, uh, you know, something to sustain us uh, uh, for for drinking. I remember reading that most of the apples that got planted all over the place by by Johnny Appleseed were were typically used for making drinks be they non-alcoholic or mostly alcoholic frankly um just you know and it helped people literally survive in this land we've had apples the whole time we've been here why did why are we so slow to educate people about it and and, and get it out to the masses in in this form
4: yeah so i mean you know there what there certainly was a cider industry here um but it 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 wasn't the way that we think about a cider industry now right Um, there were definitely trees in the ground. People were, people were planting orchards for the the sole purpose of cider making, you know, the way that we understand apples today from an eating perspective didn't really exist. Um, everything you see on a grocery store shelf is, you know, is, is essentially made to look really pretty on the grocery store shelf. Those weren't the kind of apples that, that Johnny Appleseed and others were growing, um, back in early America. When prohibition happened, you had a, at that time, there was already kind of a flight out of the countryside into the city. Um, and cider was really a countryside drink. So you, you probably weren't like headed to the bar in in New York City and like getting a pint of cider that that was likely didn't exist. Um, you were going to be up near where I grew up, um, or maybe just 20 minutes north of, of Manhattan, probably, um, you know, drinking, drinking cider that way. So when Prohibition happened, and then uh, temperance, you know, well, temperance and then prohibition. Um, a lot of the fruit that was being grown for cider making, um, you know, you, you have to imagine the trees very differently than the way we see trees today. They were, you know, twenty foot trees, twenty foot plus trees. They took, you know, more than five years to bear fruit, probably closer to ten. Um, so, you know, you, everyone's heard the the an apple a day keeps the doctor away. It's really, um, it's a temperance statement. Um, to convince apple growers to stop growing apples for cider making and to grow them for eating. And that was sort of the transition of apple growing from cider making to what we know is, as eating apples. It really wasn't the, the industry like it is today. Um, and so when that happened, you know, just imagine w- when beer went away, you know, you tore out, let's say you tore out all the grain, but nobody tore out all the grain, that didn't happen. Or you tore out all the hops, You can get hops back in a couple of years. Um, Apples at the time would take 10 years or more to to get fruit bearing. So when it went away, it kind of really went away. All that grapefruit was torn out of the ground and it just didn't come back. And we kind of lost we lost tradition. Um, And so that tradition really didn't get picked back up in any commercial way until you know 30 odd years ago Um, mostly in the northeast people started making cider sort of in a european tradition but mostly in an english tradition Um, but that's you know it's still it's still a really new industry as we understand drinks industries it's it it just kind of got lost in the shuffle
2: wow that's i mean that's very telling thank you super informative
3: Yeah. And I mean, I I definitely want to hear more about some of these apple uh, varietals that it sounds like you're working with and doing some uh, really innovative work to kind of bring back from maybe not extinction as a species, but definitely like a complete disappearance from uh, the American drinking consciousness. But first, we got to take a quick break and hear from some of our sponsors, but we will definitely be talking about apples and what they're doing today with Ryan Burke from Angry Orchard after this.
1: All of us at HRN have been keeping busy, despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of Food Radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org newshow new show.
3: And we are back. You are listening to The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. Today we're talking with Ryan Burke, the head cider maker for Angry Orchard. And uh, before the break, we touched a little bit on how apples went from being this very broad, vast, very diverse, very interesting uh, product to thanks to Prohibition, our old friend Prohibition fucking everything up. um, (laughs) They were sort of uh, more... There was this push to make them into more of a, an edible product than a drinkable product. And we lost a huge amount of biodiversity and really interesting, unique apples, plants that have been cultivated for this purpose of making delicious cider for for hundreds of years. And that's some damage that you and Angry Orchard are, are now doing some fun experimental stuff to, to try and um, resurrect a little bit. Is that right?
4: Yeah, and I think you know it's 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 an industry that's trying to do it. Um, I think, I mean, you know, every apple is fermentable, right? So I could take a red delicious, which of course we know is not delicious at all, and, <laughs> nope. and I can make a cider out of it. That's not a problem. It's a simple sugar. It's not like brewing. There's not a bunch of stuff left over. Um, it, it's it's very easy. Um, I shouldn't say it's too easy because that is, you know, it, it can be hard work, but, um, you know, in a sense, it's very easy to ferment an apple. Um, I, it might not be good. Um, so when you take an apple of sort of low character, like, say, a Red Delicious, um, yeah, it looks good on a shelf, but it doesn't really do anything else. It doesn't taste great. It doesn't really smell that good. Um, it The acid's kind of, you know, in the middle. It doesn't have any tannin. So when you ferment it, that's what you get. You get a cider that, doesn't really smell very good. Doesn't really have any body. The acid's not really very interesting. So, yeah, it's a cider, but so what?
2: Um, right. the, the fermentation process doesn't change the original product. It just yeah. does something new to it, right?
4: And then, so. yeah, and then what you end up having is, you know, people, instead of making cider out of, you know, just apples or pears, then they're, you know, because they, they would have a cider that's really bland and boring, they might throw X, Y, and Z in it. You know, you name it, you can find it in a cider. Um, and so. And that's fine. That's that's not. I'm not. I'm not tearing that down in any way. Um, and a lot of interesting things can be made that way. However, what I think is the most interesting is cider that's based on character that comes, you know, explicitly from apples. And so there are apples out there that have interesting levels of tannin, you know, aromas that are way off from what you're used to biting into, um, you know, acid off the charts. And so those are the kind of apples that. Uh, make cider that I find really compelling and as a cider maker are the most fun to get into. And that definitely requires a certain amount of, um, you know, paying attention to old European varieties. Um, You know, luckily, actually in New York State, paying attention to some old varieties that were discovered here, like the Newtown Pippin apple, which discovered in what is now Queens used to be called Newtown um, apples like the Northern spy that, that, that were founded up um, where I'm from in Bloomfield, New York. Um, so these are, you know, varieties that have really interesting tan, or I'm sorry, really interesting acid, super minerally driven apples, depending on where they're grown, really great aromatics. And so um, all of those kinds of apples, the sexier stuff, they're harder to come by. They're not grown as widely in America. And so, You know, those cider makers that are really interested in that kind of stuff are trying to bring those varieties back. And, you know, I'm proud to say that we are. Um, We're not just trying anymore. So if you go to the nursery um, to get trees, you know, the traditional cider apple varieties, the bittersweet, bittersharp varieties and some of the early American heirloom apples, they're sold out for years now because the nurseries are being bought out. People are planting this stuff in mass around the country um, and the industry is better for it.
3: Absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm always in favor of bringing back, you know, uh, what um, I just I'm just hearing you talk about this. And I'm remembering like being a kid and thinking that there were three types of apples, the red one, the yellow one and the green one. And I'm a fan of anything that expands, you know, there's not our our knowledge of the food that we eat and the drinks that we drink, because there's not just one or two types of apples, just like there aren't just one or two types of people. Um, I do want to know what the process of like tracking these down was. Like, was it sort of an Indiana Jones quest to find mm-hmm. these apples, or is there like, you know, one one secretive hermit up in Syracuse <laughs> that's just been guarding all of these trees for generations? Or where well, I, where does one go to get these? I mean, not even <laughs> trees, not even trees, but just heirloom seeds, I assume, right?
4: Well, not not seeds. So if you if you plant the seeds out of an apple, you won't get the same variety that the seeds came out of. Um, So you get actually five new apples, not, not, you know, if you took the seeds of a Macintosh and planted them, you would not get any Macintosh. So every apple tree you've ever had has been grafted. So a piece from the previous tree has to be taken off and then planted, you know, grafted onto rootstock of a new tree. And so that's how every apple we've ever eaten. That's, that's the way we interact with, with apples to, to propagate them, to, to, to keep the variety, um, the lineage continuous if we didn't do that then every variety that you know of would disappear in a season um, so how does it happen um, yeah there are some hermits um, one of them is Steve wood um, he's a cider maker in New Hampshire his label is Farnham Hill a lot of people would call him the Godfather of American cider and that's that's probably a pretty good title um, another uh, guy is Ian Merwin who uh, I was a professor of pomology up at Cornell, and these guys back in the 80s, um, although I wasn't there, I'm pretty sure the 80s, it could have been the late 70s. Um, they got a taste for cider, an interest in cider, um, and they were. Um, <laughs> I don't want to blow their spot up because it's some <laughs> somewhat questionable <laughs> legality around getting rootstock from Europe and, and bringing it over here. Um, so I'm not going to explicitly say that they did it. Um, but yeah, there's some Indiana Jones-ness of it that these varieties just were not available in the U.S. Um, and, and, and so what you would have to do is what one would have to do, not saying either of these guys would have to do is um, head over to Europe, take a piece off of a tree. Um, and bring that piece of a tree in their luggage somehow back to the U.S. and graft that piece onto an existing rootstock. And from that, you would be able to grow that tree that was over in Europe. And by doing that, um, you know, you get new varieties. And so most of the varieties that, that are, you know, the varieties that are the most interesting, um, at least from my perspective, those that have high tannin, uh, what we call bittersweet or sharp. There are European varieties, mostly England and France and to some extent um, Spain. So, yeah, you would physically have to go there and, and get them back then. Now they come through, you know, they come through universities. Um, they're, you know, they're they're logged at places like Cornell. Um, they're available to nurseries and we can you know, easily get them today um, outside of the fact that, you know, the nurseries sell out. But you if you wanted them today, you could get them 30 years ago. You would have had to be a little bit more adventurous.
2: That that that's patently fascinating to me. Uh, just the just the the sheer amount of horticulture uh, brain work that is involved in, in just getting the apple that you want to come out of the tree that you planted. Yeah. <laughs> that seems pretty crazy. Uh, and then once all that uh, g- gets accomplished, and then it takes you know some t- amount of time for the fruit to bear, and then we get to harvest season. Talk about the experience of harvest season uh, at Angry Orchard.
4: Yeah. So. Um, this year, it was, it was a great year. This is a, a really good um, growing season for us. And we are, you know, we bought our property here in 2014. It was already planted with the, the sort of usual suspect um, New York State varieties for the grocery store, um, you know, Empire, Macintosh varieties like that. Um, varieties that probably all of us grew up eating. They're, they're, they're sort of out of fashion these days. People don't really eat those apples anymore. Um, you know they 're not crisp enough or they don 't look good enough on the shelf and so the the, the trees here were planted in the um, in the seventies um, so we cleared some property, we built our cider house, and then we started transitioning the fruit over um, and so this year was the first year that we really got a good crop of our traditional cider apple varieties so it 's an exciting harvest season for us um, we're doing we're really getting to know the fruit and so uh, what that means to me is doing a lot of single variety fermentations, um, which is like a really clean fermenting, excuse me, clean fermenting yeast, uh, so I can really get to understand the fruit that we have here. And while we go forward, you know, we'll... We'll understand the kind of aromatics we're going to get. We'll understand um, the levels of tannin that we have. um, And really we'll understand what we can do into the future. So we'll have a vision of the harvest before it happens. Um, We'll know where we're going to direct certain fruit. Is it going to be, you know, fermented with no yeast and then aged in a barrel for two years? Um, And we'll know that because we've done these single variety fermentations to really understand them. Um, So it's a buzzy time of year. We just wrapped up. Um, I, I would say that, the only sort of negative this year was that it was a little early. Um, usually we, we we would still have some fruit on the tree at this time. Um, and we we like to leave fruit on a little bit longer. So we really get a fully ripe, developed apple. Um, some apple varieties will develop, you know, would developed just fine. Some things we would have liked to have on the tree a little bit longer, um, but all in was a really good harvest. And um, yeah, we're, we're just now starting to press. So harvest season plus, plus you know, pressing season all kind of happens at one time. As soon as the fruit's coming off the tree, as long as it's ripe, um, you know, we're, we're getting right into the pressing season. So we operate the way you might imagine a winery does. Um, it all kind of happens in this one big moment, um, basically the end of September through December. And then we kind of, then we, then we slow down on, you know, a ton of activity and our fermentations are kind of ticking along or aging or, or whatever.
3: So you, you, you said you fermented something with no yeast. Did I catch that right? There, you do a – how? <laughs> what, <laughs> well, what is that process I mean, like?
4: Yeah, sorry. Um, no, no, we don't have magic tricks. Um, we don't pitch yeast, so it will be natural wild fermentation. Oh, uh, awesome. So we do – in Walden, we probably do um, maybe 75% of our fermentations. We will do totally natural. Um, and it's just for, for me – That's how I really got excited about cider. Um, I tasted uh, Oliver cider out of Hereford, UK, um, you know, 11, 12, I don't know, maybe longer ago than that. Um, And when I tasted that, that's when I was like, oh, okay, this is is something I really want to know about that I really want to get comfortable with, that I really want to explore. And ultimately, that led me closer to my opportunity to get into the industry when I I, I, I should say, at the time, I was in law school, which was a complete uh, mistake. Um, and as soon as I <laughs> really started to get into the food and bev industry as a sort of sideline guy, um, I realized that I'd made a made a mistake. That I needed to, I needed to get into the the food and beverage industry. That's where I wanted to be. Um, and when I tasted those first ciders from the UK, that's when I really knew. Um, and ultimately, that got me to the UK. I, I never had the opportunity to get over to Europe. Um, and cider got me there. And when I went, um, that's when I really, i sort of lost my mind. I was just like, I can't believe this all exists. Um, I'd heard about it, but had never seen it. And when I, when I, when I, you know, I spent time with Tom Oliver, who's a, you know, a friend now and a, a mentor of mine um, and tasted all of his natural fermentations. I just like couldn't, I don't know. I couldn't believe it. And I've always tried to emulate that. I've always tried to make cider that brings that kind of passion and that kind of excitement. And so we, that's really a focus here um, is to let the apples speak as much as possible to never get in their way um, and to create fermentations that are um, interesting and balanced by using just apples and, you know, our microflora. So if you came up to visit us, you know, we're in the middle of the 60 acre orchard. So I always try to liken it to like, you know people go crazy for cantillon right for for the for the wild beers the natural beers of cantillon
3: they um, sure do know, one
4: time cantillon in brussels was in the middle of a cherry orchard and that's one of the reasons they have the character that they have. That's, of course, all gone now, but it's all in the rafters. It's in the wood. Um, and it's, it's what makes that beer so special. Well, we've got the exact same thing here, right? We're in the middle of an apple orchard in the fall. We open the windows up. Um, there's just wild yeast blowing in and out and everywhere. It's all over the apples. And we use that. We utilize that yeast to stay as true as possible
2: to the fruit um, through our fermentations.
3: I love that. That's, man.
2: Yeah, I do, too. Um, you know, uh, I think based on you kind of buttering me up and talking about having drinks at my bar, it seems like you and I maybe have a similar palate for more aggressive or bitter flavors. Uh, and you said your eyes were kind of opened when you tasted these European versions of cider. Um, talk about, for the listener's sake, uh, what those differences are. What, what makes those uh, ciders a little bit more, I don't know, pronounced? What, 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 what do American ciders look like or what did they look like at that time that made them so different? And where are we going from there? Sure.
4: Yeah, I think, you know, the the, the great thing about bitterness um, is you can layer things on it. Um, and so if I want more acid, then I, I, I want to bring some um, bitterness in. If I want if I want to get sweeter, um, it's great to have some bitterness to balance with. So I sort of look at a cider apple as, a, as, as levers. Um, and so I have some amount of sweetness, some amount of acid, some amount of tannin. And I sort of play with those levers to make balanced drinks. Um, I'm guessing sort of similar for you. Um, yep. And, you know, th- those are the ciders that when I first had them blew my mind. And I, at, at you know, 11 odd years ago, um, I, you know, the only place I I would really have them is in a European cider. That's all changed in the U.S. Um, over the last decade, which is, which is great. Um, but to me, they, you know, from a, what was even more interesting about, That bitterness is what it represents in the apple for me as a cider maker um, is that it allows me to take what a lot of people might call risks in fermentation technique. And so, you know, tannin as as a polyphenol, um, it it allows me to age cider. It's an antioxidant. Right. So it protects. A cider. And so it actually allows me to age cider for longer periods of time. It, ate, it allows me to explore um, flavor profiles and aromatic profiles in ways that I wouldn't be able to if I didn't have that. Let's say I just had an apple that was um, a high acid apple, which is great. And I'll make some great cider out of a high acid apple. But if I have a high acid apple blended with a high tannic apple, um, then I can feel a little bit more comfortable about aging it for a long period of time in a barrel. Um, I might be able to then. You know, I might be able to celebrate micro oxidation a little bit more, so bring in some of that, you know, kind of nutty, sh- like sherry type character, and so that's exciting to me as a cider maker. And then ultimately, uh, because I'm excited, I, I I'm able to blend and make, you know, ciders that are interesting and different for for our drinkers, which you know get celebrated in our in our in our tasting room, which is just a ton of fun. So that that thing that is bitterness in my category is the thing that keeps me in my category. It keeps me excited. It keeps me wanting to try new things and push the boundaries in different ways.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that sounds outstanding. And that's certainly, you know, kind of wetting my palate to to, to give cider another go. You sent us a care package. Sadly, I don't have it here in front of me. Uh, I know Greg does. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to crack into those things because, you know, cider, I feel like for me anyway, has been a category that's Uh, Been lost on me. Uh, I feel like uh, at least my experience, again, pretty pretty limited. I'm willing to admit, uh, has been like these products are just not to my palate as they are frankly too sweet for me. Um, But I have been introduced to a few different ciders uh, in in recent years that I've been like, oh, now I'm starting to get it. And I think most of those were from Europe. Uh, So it's good to know that the American palate is catching up to to this sort of tradition of making ciders that are exciting and nuanced and have have depth of flavor and they're not just, you know, boozy apple juice.
4: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's definitely a good time to get into cider and you know um, since we're all in New York um, I'll I'll just plug New York cider making. I mean, this is a place where you have the most cider makers of any state. Um, we have a history of growing the best apples in the country Um, And certainly in in the Northeast, down into Virginia, I mean, the East Coast is just such a great place to to grow apples in a way that represents kind of where they come from, um, which is across the pond. And so um, I think if you really want to get into cider, um, you know, some of the entry level stuff, and we certainly make that, um, is sweeter. um, And that's great. And people like that. You know, let's be honest, people like sweet. Um, And there's nothing wrong with that. But once they get in, if we pull them into the industry, then, you know, there's all kinds of uh, explorations in cider drinking that represent all kinds of different flavors. And there's really no one cider, right? It's just kind of all over the place. There's the category is um, ever expanding. So it just makes it fun.
3: Well, yeah, I'm sure. It's 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 like beer, you know? I mean, go back in time 20 or 30 years and people assumed that beer came in two flavors, light and regular, you know? And, and now, you know, no one makes that mistake. Everyone's, you know, everyone has their favorite IPA and people are pretty well-versed in like what you and I were talking about earlier, weird Belgian sours. And it's exciting to think that that revolution in consumer awareness is coming for uh, a product that for a while sort of languished in, as Souther said, fizzy apple juice with booze in it. But now it's really kind of maturing and, and coming into its own in the public consciousness. That's got to be cool to be a part of that.
1: Yeah.
4: I mean, and let's be honest you. I mean, Angry Orchard, we are crisp apple. It's the it's the most drunk cider in America. Um, and that's something that I'm really proud of. And I, and I, and I think it's a great cider. Um, it, it's certainly sweeter. Um, maybe it sounds like then like you, you'd be into Southern. That's, that's fine. Um, a lot of people dig it. And what's amazing about it is, um, you know, nobody out in the world knows about the cool three-year aged natural fermented bittersweet cider that I made here in Walden, right? They know about crisp apple. Well, they come to visit Angry Orchard and all of a sudden they get to taste all of this cider that they had no idea that existed, um, made from apples grown on our farm or from the Northeast, um, you know, with with European lineage, with all kinds of crazy stories that they never knew. You know, they had no idea that cider was a dynamic category, you know, with thousands of years of history. And so you know, we take a lot of pride in that hospitality opportunity that we have. You know, we know that we're a leader in our category. And so when people come here, um, we, we want to make sure that they walk out of here knowing something more about cider than they did before they walked in. Um, and that's really the beauty of the, the program that we have here, which is sort of constantly educating people. And by way of our, um, our national cider, we're, we're able to educate people from all around the country. It's, it's really a special thing.
3: Yeah. Well, speaking of, of innovation and, you know, uh, growing consciousness, talk to me, talk to me a little bit about the cider innovations and spirits lab that y'all are running. because oh, yeah. That sounds like a, a, a real incubator for change.
4: Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I never, I, I never have tried, I never limit like what we do here. And so I've got a great, um, team of cider makers and we just constantly discuss what's possible. Um, and so we're always looking to collaborate. I just like, it's another one of those things like bittersweet apples that just like keep me around is opportunities to partner with other people, learn something, you know, cider making can be a lot of hard work. And so when we get through a season, you, you know, once once pressing's done and our fermentations are nearing completion, um, you know we're thinking about well, what what about what else are we going to do with our time how are we going to keep this interesting and fun well let's start working with our friends and making new friends and using our industry to do that it's such a special industry for that reason so um, you know we collaborated with um, coffee, roasters. We collaborate with brewers, um, other cider makers, certainly winemakers. Um, we've done some, um, distillation and most recently, as you brought up, yeah, we collaborated with, um, the spirits lab. They're a new business, um, in Newburgh, New York. So, um, our County is orange County. Newburgh is the big city here. And, um, spirits lab, uh, popped up recently. Um, doing obviously cocktails uh spirits cocktails to go they opened i think like three days before everything got shut down um which is brutal Is they like you know that opened as a cocktail bar Oof. um and yeah and it's like <laughs> just shut down and so i got i just sort of got linked up with them because they were doing cocktails with this uh, this restaurant that also just kind of opened in this moment in Newburgh called mama Roo, um which has a great cocktail program a fantastic chef is a really cool restaurant sort of new orleans meets chicago vibe um and they had done some collaborations with spirits lab so that's how i got connected i went over there one day and was like hey we're looking at doing to-go cocktails what do you think and they were they were like yeah they were excited to do it so we just started ideating playing with all kinds of different ciders working with their spirits um and developing cocktails together which ultimately we um, we call them boat drinks. Um, you know, so, um, I, as it turns out, um, they've been the most popular thing we had all summer long. We couldn't keep them around. It was like, we would make them on Thursdays to have them for sale on Fridays and for the weekend. And they'd be gone by Friday night. Um, you could drink them here. You could drink them to go. And same for them. It's been a really successful partnership. It's been a ton of fun. And now we're, you know, now we're doing it seasonally with them. So. Um, The the first cocktails were more like, um, you know, we did like a rosé lemonade with our – we have a cider here called Extra Terroir Restrial, um, which which, um, um, – we have that and we have another one called um, Frankenstein and um, (laughs) – And both of them, extraterrestrial. Um, you, you might not know this, but Pine Bush, which is the town just next to us, um, is like the number two UFO sighting in America. Maybe it's number three or four or something, but it's up there. Um, and so we kind of played off, riffed off that, and made extraterrestrial. Um, and uh, the Frankenstein is a is a cider using cab uh, cab franc grapes from the uh, from the Finger Lakes. And in fact, we collaborated on that cider with. Um, a uh, winemaker named Ian Barry of Barry Family Cellars up in the Finger Lakes. Um, two of our two our really popular ciders here. And we ultimately use those in the cocktails of the spirits lab. Um, and I think we sent you the wooden sleeper, which is a bourbon barrel aged cider. So that's, you know, a great thing to rift off with old fashions. And um, yeah, it's sort of endless what's what's possible. And, it, you know, we just try to keep it fun and interesting.
2: I mean, it sounds like you guys are doing constantly innovative and exciting work, and that's gonna that's gonna uh, you know entice an audience to come uh, uh, and and taste your stuff and buy your stuff. Um, uh, and it sounds you know great, and I can't wait to get a hold of some some more stuff, and I can't wait to get a hold of the stuff that you already sent me. It's just back at the shop. Um, I'm going there tonight. Um, how can people get in touch with? you if they want to or angry orchard if they have questions or where can they find your products you got an instagram or some social media you want to put out there
4: yeah yeah if they want to get in touch with me um at ryan james burke on instagram um if they want to check out angry orchard it's just at angry orchard and then our we have a local account for for our walden cidery which is at angry orchard walden um you know then similarly it's all on twitter and all that too
2: yeah outstanding well listen ryan you've been a uh thank you so much for giving up some of your time to hang out with us today you've been a font of knowledge and i can tell it's palpable your your passion and excitement for working with these apples and turning them into something that you believe in and think is delicious and you want to get into people's hands um uh so again thanks so much for being on the show with us today um that's it for this thanks for having me i really appreciate it yeah of course
3: anytime brother that's it for well, this episode. That's of it the, for the Speakeasy well, today. Tune into heritageradionetwork.org for many more awesome food and drink programs just like this one. And be sure to click on the beating heart at the top of the homepage if you'd like to become a member or donate. But in the meantime, that is it for us from the Speakeasy. So, uh, gentlemen, until next time, cheers. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Thank you so much.
0: So you don't, don't shun the, the devil with your rock and roll, Lord. Knows no. that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil wants oh. his groove in that rhythm and blues that sound.
2: The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter.